Hi everyone, my name is Ryan Alexander and I serve as the lead pastor at Hosanna. As we've been saying for years, we believe the Lord led you here. And we hope that what you hear today will encourage you to take a step forward in your faith journey and help you look more like Jesus. After today's message, I encourage you to download the Hosanna app for more opportunities to connect and grow. Here's today's message. Good morning, church. Good morning. I'm Pastor Jen Alexander, and boy, am I delighted to get to spend another Sunday morning with all of you. Boy, my heart sometimes, it just feels like it's gonna explode out of love, honestly. For the people of this church, uh, the last number of weeks, I've been able to bounce around all of our campuses, worship with you, chat with you afterwards, and I'm just, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for all that God is doing among us and through us as a church. What a privilege it is to be part of the family of God, to get to live up, in, and out together. And what a privilege it is every Sunday morning that we get to gather under the one name that is above every other name and to lift the name of Jesus high together. If you love it, shout amen. <laughs> That's my best Dr. Gometch's Buddha impersonation, right? You know, he was here last week and what a delight it was to have Dr. Buddha with us again. Uh, as we continue in worship together, let me just remind you that giving is part of worship here at Hosanna. We love to remember that when we let go of our finances, we let go of what is hardest for us to surrender for every single one of us. But when we do, we experience such great freedom. And God uses our resources to do above and beyond anything we ever ask or imagine. And so I would invite you to, to give freely um, of your resources this weekend. And always, um, you can do so by, by texting the information that's on the screen, or you can give in giving boxes on the way out or on the webpage or the app. Thank you ahead of time for doing that. Just sewing in to what God is doing here at Hosanna. Well, we are in the middle, right in the middle of a sermon series we called Irresistible irresistible. And at the very beginning of the series, Ryan invited you to think about a food, specifically a candy that you find irresistible. And then he shared with you what his irresistible food is. His irresistible candy is red vines. Out of all the candies in the whole universe, red vines. All right, so I clearly don't share that obsession. He can have the whole bag as far as I'm concerned, but I do have my own irresistible candy. I actually have to keep it in the cupboard up above my refrigerator, do not tell my children, uh, because I gotta keep it off the counter, otherwise I'll eat all of it. And my irresistible candy is Sour Patch Kids. Anybody else out there? Anybody else out there? That's right. Yeah, actually, I have a particular fondness for, for the Sour Patch watermelons uh, in this phase of my life. And so I wonder what our irresistible foods might say about our personalities, what your irresistible food might say about yours. But this is not a series that is about candy. Obviously, it's a series about Jesus. It's a series about his church. We've been talking together about how Jesus, when he walked this earth, he was irresistible. He was magnetic. People by the thousands were drawn to him. And then his followers, you know, they walked so closely in the, in the footsteps and in the dust of their rabbi that they became more and more and more like him. And when he left his spirit with the church, we see in the book of Acts that, that again, thousands upon thousands of people were drawn to Jesus, drawn to believe in him and to worship him as the name that is above every other name, the name of Jesus. His church was so irresistible. It says that even people who opposed the Jesus followers, even people who didn't like them very much, recognized the men as ones who had been with Jesus. You can tell, you know, what we can tell about these guys is that they've spent time with Jesus. And I wonder if there's anything that I would rather have said about my life than that. 
When I spend time with Jen Alexander, man, I hope people say, wow, we can tell that she spends time with Jesus. Because as they did, those early followers of Jesus, as they spent time with Jesus and became more like him, they looked like him, they sounded like him, they prayed like him, they even got to pray for healing like him. The early church grew because by his spirit, the early followers of Jesus carried his irresistible love, we talked about two weeks ago, and irresistible faith. And this weekend, we get to talk together about irresistible unity. Irresistible unity. Even as I say the word unity, (laughs) I honestly feel like I just need to pull up a chair so we can have a conversation together about the moment that we are in with regards to this word. It's a word that has been used a lot in the last couple of years, almost so much that, we, that it would be easy for us to kind of become immune to it, uh, neutral to it. Unity is a word that many of us, some of us really love to use. We love this word. Unity is a bit like love in that it's, it's a virtue, it's a value that can kind of cover the rest of the values. And as beautiful as that is, I also just want to acknowledge that there are people listening right now for whom the word unity has become a bit of a scapegoat word. Because how you have felt in, the, in, in this season is that the call upon you, especially in the church, is that you are being asked to brush other things underneath the rug, kind of even important biblical uh, stances and principles under the rug for the sake of everybody just needs to get along, right? So ironically, in the cultural moment that we are in right now, even the word Unity has a disunifying effect on us. Isn't that incredibly ironic? But it's the moment that we are in. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Ryan and I got to go out to dinner with two of our very favorite people, Pastor Bill Boleen, who founded Hosanna, and his darling and spitfire wife. If you don't know her, oh, she's a spitfire, that Nancy. And they took us out to dinner at a lovely restaurant because they've been in our shoes, so they know how much we could just use a good dinner. And as we were sitting there together, just swapping stories and you know, sharing, sharing our food, um, this older gentleman approached our table. He came right up to our table. I would guess that he's in about his 80s. Ryan and I recognized him, know him, but he introduced himself to Pastor Bill as another Bill. And he said, I'm a longtime member of the Northfield campus, previously rejoice. And uh, this older gentleman, he took a moment just to encourage us to blow wind in our sails, which was incredibly kind. But then he also leaned in and leaned on our table and observed in only the way that an elder, someone who's lived a really long time can. And he said, you know, people are having a really hard time getting along these days. All the fighting, all the division, didn't used to be like this, he said. And he left just encouraging us, you keep on loving God, you keep on loving people. And he walked away. So what about that observation? that people are having a harder time getting along right now than a really long time in history. You know, it is true. I have found myself being really curious. I've been trying to be curious about the cultural moment that we're in right now. And so I've been reading a lot. I've been reading uh, social historians, and they confirm what Bill said and what all of us feel. You and I are living in a particularly contentious, especially hot, uniquely divided time right now. The cultural moment that we are in among our family members, our coworkers, our neighbors, our friends, 
even fellow believers, it's almost like it's just simmering all the time. It's just simmering. We feel it simmering all the time. And sometimes it gets so hot, it boils right over. With our hot opinions and our strong stances, this is the cultural moment that we are in. And so I will just share with you that, especially in the last six months or so, the question that I have been asking myself and coming before the Lord with is how, God, can I be different? How can I be different? How can I and, and all of us in this church, you know, as believers, as Christians, do what our Savior did and be completely countercultural? I think it is important for us to recognize we have not always been countercultural when it comes to disunity. If anything, Christians have been joining right along. But that is not who we are. That is not who Jesus prayed that we would be. And so I have been asking, Lord, how can we be different? I just wonder, I wonder, and when I wonder, I wonder with hope if maybe, just maybe, in this moment, if we cry out to the Holy Spirit and ask him again to make his church irresistible, if we will just be blown away by what he will do. But it begins by unifying in worship. It begins by unifying under the name that is above every other name, the name of Jesus. We know it starts there. But we have to care about unity because Jesus cared so much about unity. He cared so much about unity. He lived it. If, if you've read the Gospels anytime recently, you know that Jesus was constantly surrounding himself with people who, before Jesus came along, didn't belong together. These were people who couldn't get along until Jesus came along. When we see the list of the 12 disciples in, in the Gospels, um, often, it always, in that list, we see two people named who couldn't be more opposite. One of them is Simon the Zealot. That moniker of zealot means that, that he was, at minimum, a zealous Jew, a very zealous Jew. But it actually likely meant that he, Simon the Zealot, was part of a Jewish sect who was very uh, intentionally desiring to take down the Roman government. So he was anti-government, was hoping Jesus would be part of that whole thing. But in the same list of 12, we read the name Matthew, the tax collector, who worked for the Roman government. Among the 12, Jesus created a company of rivals, as it were. These two men and all of the men and the women who, who surrounded Jesus, they were not monolithic in their, in their backgrounds or their perspectives or their political whatevers, and yet they were able to table together. They were able to commune together. They were even able to minister together. That's amazing because of what they agreed on, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus cared deeply about unity. He lived it and he prayed fervently for it. He prayed fervently for it. John 17 has been on my heart almost constantly for the last year and a half. I wonder if that's true for many of you to the point where we might even get tired of it or just become numb to it. May we never become numb to the reality that the very last prayer that Jesus prayed, he literally spent his last prayer request before he went to the cross praying for our unity. We can't look away from that. We cannot look away from that. These are his words in John chapter 17. He's praying. He says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for those who will ever believe in me through their message. That's you and me, by the way. I pray that they will be one. 
just as you and I are one. You are in me, Father, and I am in you. May they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Keep it up there. We need to look at this. What is the reason for our unity? Why is Jesus begging God to protect it? Just for our sake? No, because it's our greatest witness to who Jesus is. It's the great so that of Jesus' prayer for unity is so that the world will believe that Jesus is who he says he is. It's our most profound witness. So Jesus begged God to protect our unity. And as we turn the page from, from the Gospels, from Jesus' life, into, into the book of Acts, the life of the early church, we certainly see this unity happening. In the book of Acts, we, we see evidence of unity uh, everywhere. We read about rich and poor, male and female, young and old, Israelites and Ethiopians, Jews and Gentiles, gathering under the unifying belief and worship of Jesus. Hear this. Unity with diversity has always been and according to Revelation 7, 9, always will be a defining characteristic of the kingdom of God. A defining characteristic of the kingdom of God and his church. It's such a beautiful vision. But because we have the writings of the New Testament authors, we know that just like today, just like the moment that we are in, unity in the early church was also very elusive really hard one. All over the New Testament, we, we read um, Paul's letters to the early church. We read the writings of, of John and of Peter. And over and over and over again, they are imploring the believers to get along, to love each other, to honor each other's differences. It's everywhere in the New Testament teaching believers how to live together in unity. One of the more profound passages is found in Colossians chapter three. This is Paul writing to the early church in Colossae. And I, and I get the sense that he's a little bit fed up, like he's kind of hot as he's talking about this because he begins with these words in verse eight. He says, but now is the time. We're not gonna wait for it anymore. Now is the time to get rid of, get rid of anger. Get rid of it. Get rid of rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. And don't lie to each other. It destroys unity. Don't lie to each other. For you have stripped off your old sinful nature with all of its wicked deeds. And Paul is reminding them, you're not like how you used to be. You're not like the people outside of the Jesus fellowship. Sure, they can fight all day long. They can slander each other all day long, but that is not who you are. That is not who we are. We are Jesus followers. We're called to be different. We're called to be irresistible. So take it off, he says. It's this image of clothing. It's like literally just rip that shirt off and get rid of it. And instead, he says, put on your new nature, which is the very nature of Christ that you are handed to only by grace. You receive this new nature. But this is what he says, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. Dust of your rabbi, become like him. In this new life, this new way of thinking and seeing the world, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. 
It doesn't matter anymore. Those distinctions still exist, but they do not matter. Why? Because Christ is all that matters. And he lives in all of us. He lives in all of us. So enough with the division. It is time to take it off. And then he goes on to, give, to, to show them what they get to replace it with, what these new clothes are like. He says, since God chose you to be the holy people that he loves, that's the why, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy. Clothe yourselves, oh Jesus followers, with kindness. Does the world need some irresistible kindness right now? Clothe yourselves with humility. That's a lost art in our society. Clothe yourselves with humility, gentleness, and patience. It takes a lot of patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Just forgive them. Just forgive them. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. The word here is harmony. The word in every other, other version you know is unity. It binds us together in perfect unity. Paul wouldn't have had these, to write these words or preach that sermon if they weren't having a hard time getting along. Unity can be very, very hard one. And we have to keep the why in mind. We have to remember, what is the why? Is the why that Christians would just get along with each other and fight hard for unity so that we can be in kind of this cloistered, protected, safe, it feels so good in here, little bubble? No, that is not the why. We have to come back to the why of Jesus. The why of Jesus is fight hard for unity because it is your primary witness to who God is, that Jesus is who he says he is. That is why we fight hard. For unity. The church can be a lot of things. The church can do a lot of things. The church can learn the Bible inside and out. The church can, can pray for the salvation of the world. The church can feed the hungry. The church can do a whole lot of things. But if the people of God are fighting, the people of God are divided, breaks the heart of God. It breaks the heart of Jesus. And why on earth would anyone want to be part of it? A fighting, divided church is about as repulsive of anything. It's highly resistible. Heck, I don't even want to be part of it, and I'm a pastor. Our unity is the way the world will know that Jesus is who he says he is. So how does that impact us here at Hosanna? Um, I'm gonna let you kind of behind the curtain. I'm gonna open up the curtain a little bit and just let you in on a process that we went through a couple of years ago. Um, it was just time for, in our organization, for us to do what every organization has to do, just update our look and our language. And, and we asked this outside organization to partner with us and just come in and pay attention to who we are, what we talk about as, as leaders and as staff and as congregation, what do we care about? And so they listened and then they came forward with, with an idea for our logo. And I remember when I saw it for the first time, my heart just started to pound as they described to us why they chose this logo for Hosanna. If you're not familiar with it, please just look at it for a moment. And if you've been around here for any length of time, surely you've heard us talk about how there are 99 lines, which means there's always room for one more, and that comes right out of the parable of the lost sheep of Jesus. 
But what is also important and very intentional is that every line in this logo is different. Some of the lines are longer, some of them are shorter, some of them are thicker, some of them are thinner, some of them are even broken. And that's because when these outside people listen to us talk about who we want to be as a church, they heard us talk about such a deep desire for Hosanna to be a place where everyone felt seen and valued to be a church that, like Jesus, values and celebrates the magnificent diversity. No two lines are the same, just like no two snowflakes are the same. The magnificent diversity of the family of God. Diversity of generations, we deeply value the diversity of generations here at Hosanna. The diversity of gender, we deeply value, male and female here. Diversity of ethnic backgrounds. Diversity of professions. Diversity of, of perspectives. They heard us, you can take the, the logo down now, but they, they heard us, this outside group, talk a lot about being a three streams church, how much that mattered to us. And, and if you don't know about this part of who we are, Hosanna really desires to swim in the deep water of a convergence of three streams. We are a three streams church, we say, which means that the traditional stream flows into this place. We have a Lutheran foundation. And there are people in this congregation who deeply value our Lutheran roots. And then we have an evangelical stream that comes into this place that is primarily just focused on, on the reality that we each need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. It's not about religion, it's about relationship. And then that third stream that comes in is our Holy Spirit stream, our charismatic stream, which reminds us that God is always bringing a fresh wind. He's always bringing a fresh water into our midst. And again, there are people in this congregation who, who value or lean into one of those streams over the other. How beautiful, how wonderful. No two lines are the same. But together in that logo, may you never see it the same again. Together in that logo, we make up this bright sunburst that is irresistible. We want to be an irresistible place that draws people, not to us, but to Jesus. And as one of your pastors, I'll attest to the fact that unity is not always easily won. You can probably imagine the emails that we get and the conversations that we get to have with so many of you who love Jesus so deeply. You love Jesus so deeply, but you care about different things. You prioritize different things. You, you care deeply about certain convictions that someone else is convicted about something completely different, and we see that as beautiful. We don't see that as oppositional, we see that as beautiful. And many of you honestly do such a beautiful job of handling those conversations, of coming to those conversations with grace and truth. Because it's okay to come with conviction. You bet it is. It's okay to come with truth. But we're so grateful for those of you who handle those conversations with the maturity to seek unity above all else by coming humbly, by coming to listen and to learn. I have to do that too. It's a very delicate dance and all of us misstep sometimes, myself included. Unity hasn't been easily won in the church all the way through the centuries and it's not in the church today, especially because the cultural moment that we are in is what it is. It is what it is. It's hot. It's contentious. 
but we don't have to join them. <laughs> we can be different. And as your pastors, we do want you to hear, we wanna be very clear that time and time again, we will choose unity. We will prioritize unity because Jesus prayed that we would. And that doesn't mean that we're gonna sweep stuff under the rug and say, no, we all have to get along. It's not shallow. Who? it's not shallow. It's very deep. It's very hard one. But we will insist that as a church, we are going to link arms against who is our common enemy. We have one common enemy. And he seeks more than anything to sow discord, sow division, get us divided. You know why? Because the devil knows how dangerous unity is. It's absolutely irresistible. So, where does this message meet you? Where does this message meet you? We have to ask that question every time we get to hear from the word of God. Where uh, do you need to make every effort to fight for unity, as Ephesians chapter four says? Because we all have to start small. This is true about unity. It will not be one in the macro unless it is one in the micro. It begins with our families. It begins with our marriage. It begins with our neighbors. It begins with our coworkers especially the ones that are different from us. We gotta fight for it right there. And it's why, as a church, we prioritize community groups. You hear us talking about this all the time, but one of the, one of the primary reasons that community groups are so important is because they put us into these smaller communities where we get to practice, where we get to practice throwing off our old clothes and even though we come from different backgrounds and we have different perspectives, we put on the new clothes and together we practice loving each other with patience and humility and kindness and gentleness. We prioritize our unity over our divisions in those smaller groups. It's gotta start small. And then as a church, you know that monthly we come to the communion table together and we get to do that together today. There is perhaps no other experience as unifying for the church because we are joining with Christians for thousands of years and Christians all over the world today. And even just as our four campuses, we get to come together to the same table and remember our savior who died to win our unity with God and with each other. But before we move into that moment, we have spent a little time in scripture today, but it's been pretty fast. And I, and I just had a sense that we just needed to soak in a passage of scripture for a few moments together. The reason that we're going to soak in this passage is that a couple of weeks ago, I was part of a group that um, gathered to, to talk about and to pray about how Hosanna can continuously, I mean, it, it is, we're making huge headway, but how can we become more and more and more like Jesus by continuing to see and value and empower everybody, the diverse family of God? And on that night, my friend Amina was there. And as we went to prayer, she is very, very wise. You don't get to know her yet, just take my word for it. This is a wise woman. And as we went to prayer, she opened up her Bible and she read this passage. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And it's a passage, you may be familiar with it, that paints the beautiful metaphor, the compelling metaphor of unity in the church being like a healthy body. And so as she reads this, 
I'm gonna invite you to close your eyes and just receive the word of God and let it do what it does. The word of God is living and active. Allow it to penetrate your heart. Allow it to show you something new. Allow it to convict you where needed and teach you where needed. Let's all do that together, hearing the same word read by Amina. Thank you, Pastor Jen, for that important message. This is from 1 Corinthians 12. There is one body, but it has many parts. But all its many parts make up one body. It is the same with Christ. We were all baptized by one Holy Spirit, and so we are formed into one body. It didn't matter whether we were Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free people. We were all given the same spirit to drink. So, the body is not made up of just one part. It has many parts. Suppose the foot says, I am not a hand, so I don't belong to the body. By saying this, it cannot stop being part of the body. And suppose the ear says, I am not an eye, so I don't belong to the body. By saying this, it cannot stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, how could it hear? If the whole body were an ear, how could it smell? God has placed each part in the body just as he wanted it to be. If all the parts were the same, how could there be a body? As it is, there are many parts, but there's only one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, it is just the opposite. The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are the ones we cannot do without. The parts that we think are less important, we treat with special honor. The private parts aren't shown, but they are treated with special care. The parts that can be shown don't need special care. But God has put together all the parts of the body and he has given more honor to the parts that didn't have any. In that way, the parts of the body will not take sides. All of them will take care of one another. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part shares in its joy. You are the body of Christ. Each one of you is part of it. Amen. This morning in my time of prayer before this message, I said, Lord, what are you doing? And immediately I heard the word repent. And that's not always what I hear. But it hit my heart and maybe it was just from me. I know that I need to repent of the ways that I have not valued other parts of the body in the way that I need to. So Holy Spirit, forgive me and anybody else among us today who needs to be forgiven for the same. God, thank you for this beautiful vision of a body. God, would you continue to show us the beauty of this body, every part. God, that we may become more and more like you. We pray that this would be a place of irresistible unity and it can only happen by your spirit. It can only happen by your blood. God, would you come Cleanse us of our sin. Make us more like you. 
We ask it in the perfect name of Jesus, under whom all of us are unified. Amen.